Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of Co-Creating with AI. With me, as always, is Rasmus, and uh, I'm Martin. And with me and us today are uh, Oscar uh, Beibom, who is the CTO and founder of Nickel. And you are in Santa Cruz, uh, California, Oscar. That's right. You surprised me there. I thought we were going to speak Swedish, but uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm kind of relieved we're speaking English, actually. Yeah, yes, yes. And uh, so what's up? In Santa Cruz? Well, uh, it's finally getting warm. We had a terrible winter with, with the Californian standards. We had rain, you know, mm. we had rain. Just just that. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it just dragged on a little bit too long with the, with the non-sunny weather. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so it's, it's getting warm again, so it's nice. Yeah. Cool. I'm, uh, I'm coming over to visit in six weeks from now. Oh, nice. uh, so let's let's nice. meet up for sure. Uh, and uh, so, how's it going with nickel? Uh, Nickel's going well. We started it uh, two or three years ago. Actually, we uh, ended, up, ended up going uh, joining y, the Y Combinator, the Y Combinator Accelerator program. Uh, we actually applied on a whim, uh, and got kind of surprised that we got in. And then we weren't even sure if we were going to like accept the offer, uh, which is kind of funny because. Other people I talked to, they were like, oh, it was the best day of my life the day I got the Y Combinator acceptance letter. I think I think a lot of people are like 22 when, when they when they apply and it's, it's like a big part of their identity. We were all like in our 40s, kind of jaded old men. So we we're like, I don't, know, I don't know if we need this, but uh, um, we ended up doing that um, and then been growing the business ever since. Uh, so, um, so we're a pretty small team. Uh, we're still... We've realized the hard way that, uh, so Nicholas is a platform play, right? It's sort of, we help people build up their own machine learning applications. Um, and it's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to sell. It's a hard thing to market, uh, a, a platform because mm-hmm. basically people have to bring their own, um, value proposition when they come they have to kind of click for them to say, okay, I have this problem. And if I find a platform that offers a, you know, classification or detection, I could put those two together and save X amount of dollars, right? Um, but, you know, so far we've had amazing retention. We have like 98% retention. So uh, we wow. still think we have a good product. The people that find us tend to tend to really stick around and use us more. It's just, it's a big world out there. And uh, as you both know, you're entrepreneurs. It's like hard to um, make yourself heard and find the right people. So that's, that's some of the things we're, we're struggling with. Yeah. Can can you just like uh, just for me? I mean, I, I obviously you know we chatted a little bit before and everything. But yeah. Like if you would just pitch Nickel, just like you know the short version and maybe like who uses it? Like what's the kind of uh, what what type of you know what type of examples are people using Nickel for? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the type of people is like a founder, CEO, founder CTO of a smaller company that basically. What, they don't want to start building up a whole machine learning team internally. They don't want they, they don't want to hire machine learning experts or data scientists. But they have they realize they have some sort of automation need in the company. So a good example is a company called um, the Garden. So they have uh, indoor plants, right? Uh, and they're like smart plants. So they have cameras and and, and, and and there's an app associated with it, and the and the customers get notifications about what's going on with the plant, right? Um, so for example, is the plant wilting? Is it, is it bearing fruit? Is it flowering? Uh, so it's, a, it's the kind of thing where, and you can imagine these pictures look a little odd cause there's like cameras mounted on the frame and it's sort of 
close close ups and, and, and blurry and whatever. So a standard off the shelf AI may not realize what's going on. But with Nickel, basically what we allow them to do is just upload a couple of examples each, like start with maybe 10 each. And, and they just provide a label. And what we do is then train a model in a couple of seconds, 10 to 30 seconds, and deploy it to like an elastic endpoint, um, infrastructure endpoint, and then give them an API call to, to call it. Um, so it's sort of like, and it's industrial strength. So we have people using us at like hundreds, 100 million calls per month, right? So you can really hit that endpoint hard. Um, but you can, but you bring it up very quickly. So it's sort of, we think it's the best of, both worlds for people that want to like small companies want to move really quickly and, and not worry about any of the, you know, infrastructure or machine learning minutia, if you will. Okay. And then, so the, the, so in this case, garden, you know, very quickly get that part done and yep. can then use that labeling, so to say, and say, you know, sending notifications to their, their users yep. based on like the plant and yep. You don't like so. Is, how, how does that work? Like, can you share anything about how that works behind the hood, like or under the hood? You say right? Yeah, yeah, sure, under the hood. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, so we build. Actually, I did uh, the AutoML system, right? So it's um, um, what we do is we take a, a big suite of, of pre-trained, you know, deep, deep neural networks, and we we had picked them so that they sort of span the, the spectrum of like most things that people would want to do with. Images. We also support text, but let's stick with images. And then what we do is we fine we basically fine tune them all on on their data in this at this at the same time, and then we pick the one that works the best and deploy that one. Oh, cool! So you actually you you fine tune a lot of different models, and then you evaluate which one yeah. was best for the task based on the on the yeah. Uh, and we fine tune them actually in different ways. So we fine tune each model maybe three to five different ways, because there's a lot of hyperparameters involved yeah. in fine tuning, right? So we, so it's sort of trying the kitchen sink, uh, but very, very quickly, and then mm -hmm. just picking the one that works best. Cool. Um, and I mean, you know, awesome. like, yeah, yeah, I think, like I said, once people find us and they get it, they're like kind of amazed how, how quickly it is to get, get up and going. Mm. Um, and uh, how do you position yourself now when when uh, other models start becoming more multimodal and so on? It's it's still like you, on a special specialized task. You might be much better at just be get, getting the customer up and running. I guess. Yeah, you know, I think that's our. I mean, that that is our challenge. I think most people realize that um, even with a big LLM, multimodal LLM, you there's a choice of whether you prompt engineer. Which becomes sort of that's the quick and quick and dirty way, or you fine tune, which is sort of the proper way. But then, I mean, OpenAI has, an, has a fine tuning API. Um, but once you get started getting into that, you still have this sort of sometimes called data engine in the industry, where you like, well, which example should I fine tune on? How do I balance my classes? How do I pick which? You know, once it's deployed, how do I improve it? So, um, so we have that all built into the product. Right, so um, we help you select samples to train on. We help you manage the class balance, and then once it's deployed, we actually have a feature called Invoke Capture that sort of captures from the active data stream and lets mm. you just keep keep fine tuning. Um, so it's like uh, you know, <laughs> but to answer your question more directly, I don't know if we have a good good way to articulate what I just said yeah. um, in like a one liner on a homepage. 
Um, we're just hoping that as the field matures, people will realize that, you know, like I said before, the camera started rolling. Um, maybe pick the task instead of picking the model, right? Like I need to classify images rather than I want to use, you know, Claude X, XYZ for something, right? Um, yeah, I think that's yeah. a really interesting point. Like just on like, you know, imagining kind of where the field goes. Because we are obviously like we were considering these kind of things as well, but that you immediately you get really good at, you know, getting to which is the answer of which is the right model very quickly. And you've sort of generally established, if I understand it correctly, that fine tuning, like you're always going to fine tune a model to get the result, at least for the kind of tasks that you're optimizing for, like with classification. Yeah. Um, and, and you're also saying that, if I understood that, like, you don't like you can do that with very little data because that's something I'm like with images I've heard that but like is like what what are the limits to like get to good result and how do you like evaluate that do you involve the customer in that or have you actually found ways to have like evals of how good the um, the uh, you know which one is the best out of these models you fine tune? Yeah, I mean we use uh, cross validation. So like the first thing you do when you when you create a function in Nickel is you upload some examples of what you want to do. And I always say they should like to me you should do that anyway. Like even if you use a LM or whatever off the shelf, you want to like measure at least you want to measure performance or before you put something in production. So say you do like fifty or hundred examples of okay if the email says this. I think it's uh like my colleague just made a demo for like outbound. We get a lot of outbound spam, right? Uh, as a as a B two B B two B founder, so he made a nickel function that says this is this is like an outbound spam email. So you want to like say you label like hundred examples of both, right? And I think you need to do it anyway because then you can at least measure how well you're even if you're using an LLM solution, if you even if you're prompt engineering, you want to see if it's working. Uh, the thing is, once you have hundred hundred examples of each, you can use something called cross validation. You guys, do you guys know what that is? Yeah, maybe for the listeners, so you like. You kind of chunk up the data, so you train on 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 like ninety percent and, and test on the last ten, but then you circle, yeah. up, and then you cycle through, so you end up basically testing on everything. Mm. Um, so um, so now you're basically just fine tuning a model on ninety percent of that data and, and testing it and cycling through, and then turns out that's that's plenty enough to to fine tune a model. Mm. Uh, so we're fine tuning it, and then we're measuring it on on the data you just provided, right? And and just strictly saying, well, whatever gives you highest accuracy. Um, yeah, so, so then you can actually also incorporate a multimodal model. You could bring in Lava or something as one of your models and, and fine-tune yeah. it and, and or just evaluate different kinds of prompts for the classification yeah. that the user needs. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Cool. Yeah, so... so. And uh, you are coming from the like the autonomous vehicle space since before Nickel. How is that playing into like, how you're making tech choices and and uh, like running your company now? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so for context, the the team I had when I left was like hundred people, so it was. Researchers, um, sort of data scientists, uh, data annotation and the whole data annotation mm. group, and an infrastructure group, right? 
And it was like, even with that many people, just spinning up a new thing always felt like a, <laughs> like a chore. Like it, it was yeah. sort of a, it was like too, it felt like it was too much work to spin up like a, a simple thing. Um, so that was part of the motivation with Nicole. And also a friend of mine had like a, he had a company where he needed a text classification thing and he couldn't find, this was like a couple of years ago and he couldn't find anything that was like remotely use, useful for a non-ML person to spin something up. Uh, so that's sort of why we started at um, started Nicole. Um, so to me, I mean, I've been doing ML, applied ML for like 20 years. I was actually at Hoveding. Um, I was, I, I created oh, really? a Hoveding, uh, Hoveding algorithm. I was mm -hmm. the first employee there. Um, so I've been doing applied machine learning for like my whole career. Um, but I, uh, so to me, it's just interesting to see how user-friendly can we do this? Like, what is the right abstraction, uh, API abstraction, if you will, for like, uh, for like a solid machine learning platform that's truly useful for, um, in, in practice. Cool. Yeah. And have you kept track of, uh, the vehicle space, autonomous vehicle space? since like where, yeah, where, do you I mean, see, where do you see it going now is it is it uh, accelerating or plateauing or what's happening there at the moment yeah it's a good question um so i have a lot of a lot of friends that worked on i think i have friends in all different all the different companies um i mean the reason i quit is it's a twofold like the company i ended up you know the company i started with was an mit startup it's called autonomy right and then it got acquired once you got acquired again, and finally it was like a subsidiary of, of Hyundai, right? Mm -hmm. And the way that company was run, I just, I, I didn't think they were going to succeed um, in building a something thing um, specifically. But then more generally, I, I don't know, like I'm not convinced that the current state of like deep learning or AI technology is able to handle like an open world scenario. Okay, so there was always this as the field started growing, right? Sort of the deep learning revolution kind of happened at the same time as the self-driving car space really took off. And there was always this question of like, do I, okay, so you create a bigger model, right? A bigger neural network. You have a higher capacity of that neural network to handle different types of situations. Okay, cool. So in theory, we just make the neural networks bigger and bigger, and then we can handle more situations, right? But the problem is on the other side, the situation, the type of situation can go, uh, end up in in an open world is is exponential or combinatorial right so you have mm. you can see uh, you know 100 types of of, of pedestrians right uh, you can uh, there's there's like you know 50 types of weather conditions you can consider there is um there's light conditions day, daytime nighttime dusk and all of these end up is like different axes of this multi-dimensional grid right and every single every single combination of those you have to be able to handle so now you end up with these huge machinery of like, first of all, like finding data that, that fits in all these boxes so you can even know if you can handle them, right? And then mm. you need to train on them. And then fine, that's that's like an engineering problem. Maybe we can handle that. But then there's the, the fundamental machine learning theory problem of can the models like become big enough to handle all those corner cases uh, without forgetting other ones? Uh, and that's where I wasn't sure, like, I mean, I think the jury is still out, but it's. I'm I'm not very hopeful that our current the current <laughs> technology really is what I would think of as an like uh, uh, general AI. Hmm. That's really interesting. 
Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting because all you hear, like, and uh, I drive on myself, that like all you hear is about the like Tesla FSD, especially the latest one that's out now in beta. I think it's 12. I don't I haven't tried it, but mm-hmm. like how good it is, and that they made the switch from like a more um, thought through rules based scenario based kind of AI model to like one trained, I think, on either raw images or I mean, yeah, basically raw images. Um, yep. And that they switched sometime last year, and now it's getting there. But it's going to be interesting to see. Like yep. uh, my assumption had just been like, given how, given that you can do it for images, and and you have all of the kind of steering kind of choices yep. of drivers, yep. then it would like it would make sense that you will be able to. But you know, yeah, I mean, you got you know this better. But that's that's been an assumption of mine almost that yeah, yeah that's going to be solvable uh, yep. in this way. Yeah. And then don't get me wrong, I think that's definitely the right idea. Like what they did, switching to direct inputs. There's also a company called Comma, Comma.ai. Do you guys know, yeah. know about them? With the yeah. George, George Hotz is the, the founder. There. He's yeah. an amazing guy yeah. I, I listen to. I cling to every word he says. I think he's very, very smart guy. <laughs> yeah. um, he's, a couple, he's been on Lex Friedman a couple of times. I, I recommend, uh, I bet your listeners would, would enjoy listening to him as well. Um, but, you know, so they, they realized it very early on that they need to do an intent. Obviously, like, if anything, we've learned anything the last 10 or 15 years is that if you're doing deep learning, you want to, like, give the uh, network as much freedom as possible. You don't want to get in the way with hand-engineered rules and so on, right? Uh, so so I, agree, I totally agree with that, and I think that's the right switch from Tesla. I think, that I'm, I think I'm making more like a like a the long-term argument, right? Is this mm-hmm. actually going to solve the problem completely. And of course, in the case of Tesla, there's two, two levels, two, two, two bars, right? The, the, the lower bar is, can I solve it better than human drivers? And I think that's very attainable because the human drivers are pretty terrible. Um, <laughs> yeah. Can I, like, can I sort of perfectly model the world? I, I don't think so. Um, because there's always going to be a situation that they've never seen. Uh, and I, 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 just, I just doubt that they'll be able to generalize. Um, mm. In those situations, now yes. and, and, that, and now it becomes now it becomes more of an ethics problem of like, should we let those things drive around? Because <laughs> you'll have fewer you have fewer accidents uh, as a whole, right? I think that's very very attainable, but it's different mm-hmm. accidents, right? It's like previously the people who were fell asleep on the wheel or was drunk at the wheel ended up in accidents, and now it's just any random person who happened to be near a Tesla when when this you know, out of out of training data, out of sample event happened. Hmm. Maybe self-driving cars should uh, start doing what humans do, and when whenever you pass a traffic accident, they should like slow down and carefully monitor what's what's happened here, so I can learn from it, like, like <laughs> the humans do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Uh, when you when you look at uh, the current state state of uh, AI in uh, in uh, Bay Area and Silicon Valley where you live, do, do you do you see uh, like the the current hype as having very strong fundamentals, or do you think that this is going to be crazy for a while and and then come down and then go back to sort of a normal pace of of just uh, like developing um, technology again? Right. Yeah, I'm I'm in the in the second camp there. I um, fu- fundamentally the, the those networks have the same it's the same exactly the same problem that we discussed for self driving cars, right? Where they try to be open world, they try to handle all the situations. 
I just don't think the technology we have can do that. Like stochastic gradient descent, these big transformer blobs. Um, I think it's we're like several breakthroughs away for a truly like intelligent in a true in a true sense. So what we have now are like basically wordsmiths, like sort of, but there's no one behind the wheel, wheel right? And I can make very what mm. seems like very coherent statements. Um, so I think obviously there are use cases for that, right? Summarizing text maybe, or or or, or maybe chatbots. Um, and, and other things, but mm. I, as far as like becoming the the new sort of human computer interface and new keyboard, I don't know. Like I just think the accuracy or the like precision you need for that is, is really high, and I, and I wonder, I doubt that we can get there. Mm. Um, I don't know if, if you guys. I mean, maybe I'm just bad at this, but like every time I try and do something with AI, I have the same exact experience. I'm like, wow. Like the first thing you ask it to do is like, wow, this is amazing. And then you like, but actually, can you like change this and that? And then it just goes completely off the rails and gives me, and I'm like, okay, well, yeah, that was, yeah. So no, so I think that I agree completely with the, the open world being uh, un, unachievable at the moment. And, and uh, you need very, very strong processes um, on top of the, the LLMs in order to achieve even a specific use case reliably. And, uh, and I, I think that's where, where we feel that it's still um, possible to build a lot of value by creating those strong process, processes where the LLMs and whatever models you want to use are building blocks. And then yeah. like the, the, the actual reliable Technology is gonna gonna come from from uh, the glue as well as the uh, actual models. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting there. Like, if I would divide it, it's like on on one hand you have what you're doing right with nickel, which is kind of trying to with very high accuracy determine the label of say an image, right? Because that's yeah. actually important for the functionality of the garden app, right? If if you don't have very high accuracy not very useful. Um, and and that's kind of like, I'm not sure exactly how you do it, right? But that was what, you know, the whole kind of image net breakthrough was like, I guess, previous generation of ML like hype, um, or not only hype, but like real value being built from those like research discoveries. And then now like what it's like, it's really generative AI, right? So for most use cases for the broader, like more open use cases that aren't like very specific, then it's like generative, it's creative. It's like creative input for a human decision maker, mostly. That's where it's like really good if you think it's good, if it helps you be more creative and like get more done. But like, I think yeah. getting to the agent state, like I was much more bullish on, like if you listen to this podcast, like you know, mm. half, eight, half a year, eight months ago, I was much bullish on being able to build reliable agents that could take, you know, have more decision-making authority with the current level of models then than I am now. Uh, but I'm also like more bullish that within like current apps and good, I, within as Martin says, good processes and like good software, it can be like a component that brings a lot of value, whether it's like a high accuracy, narrow task, like I'm not sure that's all you're doing, but the example you gave like was like what I would term as a narrow task, but you can do it yep. with very high accuracy or like a broader kind of, set of tasks, which is what we kind of optimize for at Multiply, but but you can't like 
you can't trust its accuracy to the same degree. Um, right. But it can be very good creative input. That's what, I don't know. How does that relate with you? Do you sort of like, would you have any, yeah, I mean, any thoughts yeah, around this? Probably agree with that. But, you know, I talked to a friend. Uh, he's a, he runs, or he's a VP of a big uh, health tech company. So they help, like, it's, it's actually for weight loss. So they help, uh, but they're like a glue between the person and, like, an ecosystem of doctors and, and medication and, and therapists and so on. And one of the things they do is apparently the doctors, when they communicate, it's very dry and, and short and to the point. And it's not a good customer experience, right? They want. So what they do is they like they take the doctor's note and they run it through an LLM and so make it nicer, right? Mm. And then, and then of course, because the LLM hallucinates and you don't want to like make up the doctor's recommendation, they show it back to the doctor, right? And then the doctor can say, cool, send that instead of my, my note. Okay, so that sounds good. But then that's like, I mean, if you read about like, Old school, old school, like 10 or 20 year old academic work on data annotation. Like th that's a really risky thing to do, right? Because if, if the, if the translations is good, most of the times the doctors will just not r read that rendering very carefully and they just say, fine, mm -hmm. go. And now mm -hmm. suddenly you're like in a medical sort of recommendation process, introduced a bunch of bunch of nonsense, right? A bunch of hallucinations, which could actually be dangerous for the patient. So I don't know. I mean, yeah. So that's an example where like, people are just too eager to jump on this. Mm. Um, and it, it creates a worse product. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious, maybe you can share some examples of the type of guardrails you've seen working uh, with Multiply um, and how you kind of, how you think about setting that up. Well, I, I think that um, when uh, with with multiply, since we have the the creative output is is still handed over to a human, uh, we we feel like that's uh, uh, that that is the ultimate guardrail. And of course, you can also create like LLMs. Uh, you can have this actor critic pattern where you have one LLM yeah. doing something and then uh, another yeah. criticizing it and or giving feedback and. Uh, you could right. uh, do more mechanical stuff like uh, like counting words uh, just to see if or, or like if you instruct the the AI to not like be mechanical in just in terms of sentence length and uh, paragraph length. Like if you just prompt a a, a chat GPT to write a, a blog post, you will get mm -hmm. a very mechanical blog post where every sentence is equally long and every paragraph is, is equally long as the others and you can just so you could you, you could just uh you can do me very mechanical simple things like counting the words in each paragraph and giving mm. feedback like could you make this this uh, paragraph uh, twice as long and uh, like that's uh, like but that's uh, the i think maybe privilege of working in the in the sector of, of multiply that that uh, it's not it's not a self-driving car it's not gonna crash mm. into into other mm. cars or or people if something goes wrong and there's there's gonna be like a, a nuance of a of a text which is off tone of voice or something right right but but I, and, and I and I buy and I buy that but it still feels like you have this 
call it um, recency bias. So, I mean, and, and maybe the use case is different, but if people see, say they're generating some, you know, help helping generate a blog post and they, they get used to the element doing more or less the right thing and they just mm. get complacent in the review process. Yeah. But maybe maybe you could put up guardrails around that. Then. Yeah. No, but I think that te- a lot of technologies have that uh, symptom. Like just uh, I mm. read yesterday an article about how four wheel drive cars are actually in more um, uh, collisions during winter time than two wheel drive cars, and like twenty to thirty percent more because the drivers feel safe in with a four wheel <laughs> four wheel drive car. We'll just rely on the technology more. Mm. Interesting. And once okay. it gets slippery for real, like that, it's up, it's up to the driver to be careful or not. Right. Right. Interesting. Okay. But I think also, like I agree with you, and but I think at least from my perspective, kind of my little bit more philosophical view on where we are with AI and how to work with it, and also where it will go, which we try to, of course, um, live at multiply, like in our product, is like it. It is a the best way to look at it is like, mm, like a coworker almost, because it's like if I have a coworker, I'm not going to assume that they're 100% correct. I'm not going to assume that they can do my work for me. Uh, so therefore, like what we try to do, and like you know, uh, we uh, we're improving every week, right, the product. But it's like creating the good flow of working together with that coworker. So not yeah. having that coworker do everything for you, but having that coworker help you do more. And I think that's like a distinction in like, um, yeah, in at least where we're going, which is kind of a broader, you know, creating a general workspace for kind of people and organizations to get, you know, value from this new coworker. Uh, yeah. You know where, but and we have like different ways, like of how I think we get to like relatively high accuracy because all our data is like structured and labeled like automatically in the interface, etc. cetera. Uh, but, um, so, and then you refer to it kind of in the, in the prompts and in the kind of workflows that you build. Uh, but, but I think that's like, at least from a philosophical point of view, like how I think about it, because mm-hmm. I don't think we're anywhere near close where I'd allow it to do my job for me or be my boss or, you know, any of these kind of yeah. scenarios where it has, you know, but I don't know, assistant maybe is a good, good word to use. I like coworker. Because I think it's improving rapidly in kind of competency and, and kind of capability. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, I, I get why people say it's an assistant. Like, you don't let the assistant kind of maybe do your work for you, but right. it's going right. to help you. But I don't know. That's how I look yeah. at it. Uh, unless your nature right. is the chaotic good that you like, you thrive on chaos, that, that sometimes you just right. something unexpected happens. Then maybe yeah. it's something for you to have an AI boss, <laughs> GPT 3.5 boss, just to live a little. <laughs> yeah. yeah we said a co-worker i'm like i actually kind of want a co-worker to do you know be independent i don't want to like double check their work but an, but an assistant i i buy you know. yeah maybe that's a better word actually maybe i'm like uh, aspiring co-worker and i think that's sort of what people are um I think again, I want to quote George George Hotz here because I think he, he's like really good at articulating these sort of things. He's, he was saying, you know, like if you talk about writing code, right? This this agent can write code, 
I know say it, they're like at a sort of a junior junior software developer level or or or, or less. And so they can write a bunch of code for you. But um, he's like, when I write code or work with a production code base, I spend like, you know, 20% of my time writing code and then 80% of my time like thinking about code, finding bugs and, and, and making it really robust. So the last thing I want is like some automated junior <laughs> hmm. agent who just like spams the code back with a bunch of lines of code that mostly work. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think that's where people go wrong with with the, the, the coding GPTs, that they don't allow the GPT to spend 80% of the time thinking of the code and 20% mm. writing it. Mm. Oh, that's what I mean with, with robust processes, that that you like we need to find new processes where we actually uh, allow AI to be much slower, like where you can you're not you don't expect them to finish in 200 milliseconds but maybe take two days to write something and that's and that's interesting to me like what can you do if you give a, give an ai a lot bigger budget in terms of time or money like or compute interesting uh, yeah. yeah and have you seen that play out like i i think i i, I haven't seen that play out because currently that the race is like to uh, straight in the other direction just faster is better and mm. And we evaluate uh, on our, on the first try, and and not on like what is the uh, what is uh, the result after really careful processing. It's like I, I think what you describe the process you describe with Nickel is a great example of exactly that, where you train uh, automatically train a whole bunch of models, and then you fix the problems downstream by by just relying on one of them in the end. Right. Right. And uh, and for me, that's just a beautiful example of how to how to build reliable um, AI apps or, or 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 tools. Right. Yeah, and it's easy for classification because we have it's sort of a very there's an easy way to measure performance. Uh, yeah. Maybe when you're creating text, it's a little harder to judge or code to judge how to score it. Yeah, like in like classification. Mm. But uh, yeah, no, I really hope you're right. I hope you're right. Intuitively, yeah. it makes sense. Um, I work with the voice now, and uh, and just like the all the text, like the spe speech to text models, they are just crap when it comes to reliability. They hallucinate, and they really? and they are uh, like they uh, you they are as far from deterministic as you can as you could expect. Like uh, you run the same thing five times and you get five completely different results with exact same code the exact same computer like that's really? yeah and and uh, so and just but then like that becomes uh, for me it becomes a, a nice challenge to take on to handle that uh, that lack of reliability downstream is that using whisper or something like that yeah yeah i'm 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 uh, I, I spent a couple of months trying everything in the market basically and uh, yeah the the like, whisper is is um, sometimes great and sometimes mm. as bad as anything else and uh, the last model they released whisper v3 is uh, uh, much more prone to hallucinating than the v2 so yeah. so like what i see that 
is that people that, like use V2 or fine tune mm. V2. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 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 again, I think the reason that happens is because they're trying to solve an open world AI problem, right? Yes. And they and their test set or their training set didn't have enough data in that square that you are, like mm. Swedish technical, you know, yeah. speech, right? So even though they improved on their benchmark or their training data, they may maybe dropped in that in that particular yeah. in even. Like uh, last week, I tried uh, Google's uh, real-time speech-to-text API, and for Swedish, it it produces text that looks like a cross between Norwegian and and Dutch. Like it's not even like it. Uh, well, it's it's a, an attempt at writing Swedish, but it's like, and I, I I'm just astounded that they can have models out there documenting at supporting Swedish when they clearly just don't. Yeah, yeah. But I think this this is like interesting generally. I'm not sure what your view is on this, Oscar. Like I've heard this uh, mixture of experts mm-hmm. terminology come up more and more lately <clears throat> in different you know podcasts, people writing, talking about it, and arguing also that probably you know ChatGPT or like OpenAI's main offering has kind of mixture of experts architecture, which like with my understanding is kind of having this matrix, you know, this, what do you call it? This box of knowledge or training data, and then having another one and then directing you to the box, the training, the, you know, the smaller model that can actually accomplish your task reliably. Is that like a reasonable understanding of it? And what, where do you think this goes given, you know, you know, what you just said about, you know, the open world Mm -hmm. problem Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the kind of, Real world applications, but I, I might, I might, I haven't like properly dived into this yet. So this is kind of like a bit secondhand. Yeah, and I okay, so that's interesting. I mean, when I hear a mixer of experts, I think of the. I mean, that's in, in machine learning. That's not a new thing, right? It's been around for a long time. And the idea is that you train using the exact same training process. You just train multiple models on the same data set, but you sample the data just by random random sampling of the data, and up with different models, right? The learning process will be random. And then it so happens that when you do inference, you 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 do the inference on all models, and you do like a majority vote, mm. and that's that's been demonstrated to always give you higher performance, right? So that's like a that's like a what people traditionally mean by with a mixtures of experts. So when I heard that when it came out that GPT four was using a mixture of experts, to me, what I took away with that was like, okay, they are at the end of the rope. They don't know how to improve this model further because it's like the last thing you do. Uh, when you want to squeeze a little bit of extra performance out of out of an ML system, you just because you can just throw more compute. You don't have to invade at all. You just throw eight 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 times the compute on it, like eight models, and you get a marginally a little bit better better accuracy. So to me, that was a warning flag. Now, to your point, um, yeah, to your point, where like if each of these experts is really like a domain expert, they've sort of partitioned up the data space. I think, I mean, I think. You still have the same problem because then, if you, then you need to divide up the, divide up the data space. And if if you have a common, the point is like you, you can't beat the combinatorial output space. Like then you need a combinatorial no, amounts of agents that you need to train, hmm. right? One and and that becomes unsustainable. And then you need like a master agent in front that can separate all the agent. And now you have introduced another 
place where it can go wrong. Like if that first selector step points to the wrong expert, you know, like you get the Chinese speaker instead of the Norwegian speaker and now you're just completely screwed. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, caveat, I haven't read, you know, I think, I'm not sure exactly what people say when they talk about mixture of experts. So what does the future hold for nickel? Yeah, I mean, we we want to be the the, the, the machine learning API um, for developers, right? So when, when people want to spin up a new AI function, whether it's, you know, ultimately we want to do text-to-text or speech-to-text and, and all these things, uh, it, it becomes the obvious obvious choice to go to production quickly. Um, so it's a complement to, you know, hugging phase where it's for people that want to build it themselves and have full, full control. Nickel is the place for people that want to move, move quick and go to production. Um, so we're, we're like, yeah, that's what we're trying to do. Um, and uh, right now it's, it's the challenge is more like, yeah, we think we have the right recipe. We, 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 we think we like our the, the API abstraction, if you will, but it's just the marketing challenge of like getting, mm. getting traction, getting enough, getting enough people to use it. And it's a, it's a big job, right? It's a big job to schematize every possible, you know, AI function type and, and create a really, really sweet experience for that function type. So yeah. we, we need a much bigger team um, and we just need to figure out how to get traction and, and, and hire for that. But I think that's an awesome vision, though, to to create a, like a, perhaps a hugging face for the non-developers or for the for the fast movers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And so, do we have any parting thoughts? Uh, it's been amazing to talk to you, Oscar. Looking forward to see you in Santa Cruz. Gonna, yeah, I hope yeah. you'll show me some some nice uh, spots around around town. Yeah, do you, do you surf? I see the long hair there. Uh, I, sorry that, uh, that that there's no correlation, unfortunately, <laughs> in this case. But maybe I can learn. Yeah. And okay. uh, but uh, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thanks for really fun. Really yeah, fun. Thank really you. fun. Great chatting. With Especially you. loved uh, like chatting about you know your views on like uh, where the hype might be hype from like a very concrete kind of your AI ML research background it was very. Interesting. I'll I'll keep that. I will keep <laughs> brewing here. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like an old man, like an old, is skeptical of all this new stuff. Uh, I don't know. I go back and forth, but yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah. thanks a lot, guys. And uh, yeah, thank we'll you so much. Yeah. Cheers. Bye. Bye.